The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, it has been a wonderful morning thus far, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time in God's Word this morning as we uh, draw to a conclusion this study through the minor prophet Micah in the Old Testament. So if you can find your place in your Bible today, uh, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and in other words, it's one of the 12 last books in the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew and back up a little bit, you'll, you'll come to Micah, and we're going to be looking at the final chapter of that prophecy today. And what is interesting about this last chapter is we get to see really clearly four major uh, characteristics of God and how He is uh, perfect in all of those. And so just by way of introduction, I want to remind us a little bit about what we looked at uh, last time in Micah to give us some context for today. So if you would look at the last verse in Micah chapter 6, before we start in chapter 7 today, you'll see uh, the last phrases of that verse. It sounds terrible. It, it talks about judgment, and, and literally it says, uh, the Bible says, Therefore I will give you up for destruction, and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Now why would God say something like that? Well, very simply, it's like this. Idolatry leads to judgment. Idolatry leads to judgment. So when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses all those years ago, and the very first two of those commandments were, one, you'll have no other gods before me, and two, you will make for yourself no idols. So those were top priorities, right? So it makes sense that God would bring judgment and wrath on those who would disobey those two very first commandments. Idolatry leads to judgment. So what's the reaction to that? So that kind of leads us from last week to this week when we see how chapter 6 left off, how chapter 7 begins. Look at the very first phrase in chapter 7, verse 1, before we read the whole chapter. Woe is me. And so you, you get the sense of, uh, the prophet Mike is getting this information from God, and then uh, once he's receiving this and relaying it to God's people, you're going to bear the reproach of my people. That's what God says to, to the children of Israel. And then Micah says, woe is me, because look what's happened because of our disobedience, our idolatry. We've, uh, we've gone astray from what God told us to do, and now we're suffering the consequences because what's what's something we've said over and over and over throughout this study actions have consequences we can't get away from it right uh, a lot of people these days seem to want to get away from it they want to just think well you can just do whatever you want and there's no accountability no consequence well that's just not true okay that's not real life there are consequences for our actions so Micah all along has been a message of warning but a message of hope at the same time. And so, uh, as we get to this last chapter, I just want to remind us of something that is very interesting, almost ironic. Micah, the prophet. You know what the name Micah means? 
it means literally, who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? So the sermon today, the message is entitled, Is There Anyone Like Our God? The answer is no. There's no one like our God. And we'll see that hopefully more clearly today. Let's read uh, chapter 7, beginning verse 1. We'll read to the end of the prophecy, verse 20. Here's what the Bible says. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land. There's no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. And though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds." Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth, they will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this 
last chapter. I hope you could sense it as we read through. It went almost a, a, a clear transition from judgment to hope. By the time we reached the end, you could see the difference in language and the way that God gave this message to his people through this prophet Micah. So I want to talk about four things in this last chapter that show us God's unbelievable characteristics and attributes. Number one, God is unsurpassed in judgment. God is unsurpassed in judgment. Now, typically you would think that's not necessarily a good thing, but it reminds us that just as God is love and grace and mercy and kindness and all those good things that make us feel good, He's also just and righteous. And so He will punish sin. He can't abide with things that contradict His word and His ways. And so God is unsurpassed in His judgment. The way He starts out this last chapter in the first six verses, you see there's no fruit of righteousness, you start to see the breakdown of society. And I want you to think about those terms right there. The breakdown of society. Look around. Watch the news. Pay attention to the, the um, events around us. Do we not see the breakdown of society in our world today? I'm talking about morality, uh, a breakdown, leadership breakdown, family breakdown. One commentator from years ago, James Montgomery Boyce, said it this way. He says, we're experiencing the same kind of decline in our own time as occurred in Micah's times. Morality, leadership, and family are crumbling. But notice this, it is not just a meaningless decline. It's part of God's judgment. Did you hear what he said? It's not just a decline that just, oh, I wonder why that's happening. It's part of God's judgment, he says. For God has decreed that whenever a society departs from Him, the effects of that departure will be seen in every aspect of the life of that society. Doesn't that ring true? That was written almost 100 years ago. And it's so true in our society today. We look around and see everything declining, but it's not just arbitrary. It's part of God's judgment because our society is departing from His Word and His ways. I want to remind you of something that happened almost 10 years ago in Connecticut. It was a school shooting. You remember in 2012? I want to read just an excerpt from an article about that event uh, that was written by Dr. Russell Moore, who was formerly a, a professor at Southern Seminary, then he was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He wrote this article on December the 14th, 2012, about school shootings and spiritual warfare. And I won't read the whole thing for time's sake, but I just want to mention a couple highlights that draw us this uh, comparison between what we see today and what we saw in biblical times and what Mike is really talking about here, uh, the judgment of God on idolatry and sinfulness. You see, throughout the history, this is what Dr. Moore writes, throughout the history of the universe, evil has manifested a dark form of violence specifically toward children. Now, I'm going to just say this one time, and I'm not going to go on this subject because we could talk a long time about it, but you want to see the evil perpetrated against children in our society? One word, abortion. 
That's all I have to say. The article by Dr. Moore talks about the uh, condition of the society and how it has trended toward violence specifically against children. He writes that the Bible shows where at points in redemptive crisis the powers of evil have lashed out at children. Think of a couple examples that he notes in his article. Pharaoh saw God's blessing of Israelite children as a curse, so he demanded they be snuffed out by the power of his armed thugs. You recall that story? Do you know why Moses had to be put in a basket and floated down the river? Because he was going to be killed under Pharaoh's edict from, from the throne. And so children were the target of the violence. King Herod, when he saw his throne threatened, he demanded the slaughter of innocent children. Do you remember why? Well, I heard a Messiah was going to be born, and he consulted the Magi. When do you think it's going to happen? Where do you think it's going to happen? And he told them he was going to go worship. Right, But that wasn't his plan. He wanted to know where and when so he could kill all the children under the age of two to make sure that his throne and authority and his power wasn't threatened. See, as Dr. Moore writes, Jesus was not born into a sentimental winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzled up against one another at the side of his manger. Jesus was born into a war zone. And at the very rumor of his coming, Herod vowed to see him dead, right along with thousands of his brothers. So you see, the forces of evil have always been against God's plans. And they've been directed toward children. You think about all the history. Satan is, Jesus tells us, a murderer from the beginning. Because he hates life itself. He hates the lives of children particularly because they picture something true about Jesus of Nazareth. They're an they're a ever-present reminder of the generations of Christ. The generations that will belong to Christ. Satan hates children because he hates Jesus. Children are a blessing and that enrages the horrifying nature of those who seek only to kill and to destroy. You see, the, the problems that we see in life with school shootings, with abortion, with all these uh, evils of society, they come directly from a departure from God's Word and His ways. And so when, when we see how God is unsurpassed in judgment, it's not arbitrary. It's for a very specific reason. And, and we should open our eyes and see that for what it is. Number two, God is unmatched in deliverance. Just as much as God brings judgment and wrath on sin, He also delivers. From verse 7 to verse 13, Micah, Micah is looking forward now instead of backward, and praise is directed to God for this anticipated future deliverance rather than past redemption. So look at the, the future tense. I'm going to just go through this quickly. The verbs from verse 7 to all the way to verse 13. Look at all the future tense. I will watch expectantly, verse 7. I will wait for the God of my salvation, verse 7. My God will hear me, verse 7. Though I fall, I will rise, in verse 8. Verse 9, He will bring me out to the light. I will see His righteousness. Verse 10, My enemy will see, and shame will cover them. Verse 10 also, At that time she will be trampled down. Verse 11, 
On that day will your boundary be extended. And then in verse 13, the earth will become desolate because of the fruit of their deeds. All these future things God's looking forward uh, or, or giving a message to Micah to look forward to deliverance that will come. Listen, though, it doesn't come automatically. Deliverance comes from repentance. Okay? Forgiveness comes from confession, acknowledgement of sin, uh, accepting consequences, and God is faithful and just, the Bible says, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is unsurpassed in judgment. He's unmatched in deliverance. But then number three, God is unequaled in His care, His pastoral care, like a shepherd. That's where that word comes from, by the way. Pastoral care. Verse 14 down to verse 17. You see in verse 14, the very first sentence, shepherd your people with your scepter. That's a cry out to God. If you look in your Bible, you might see the pronouns your, capitalized, it's directed toward God. It's a cry out to God, almost a prayer. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself. See, God is unequaled in His pastoral care because what, what we like to remember or should remember, how many times is that word shepherd used in reference to God? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, our Lord is the chief shepherd. Psalm 23, which actually we're going to look at tonight in our Bible study. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. It's a very personal relationship. We're not going to lack rest. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into all the particulars of Psalm 23 because we're going to discuss that tonight at 6 o'clock. But we're not going to lack rest. We're not going to lack guidance. We're not going to lack safety because the Lord is our shepherd. He loves us. He cares for us. He protects us. All the functions of a good shepherd. And that's what Jesus is. So we're not going to lack physical provision. We're not going to lack a heavenly home. Psalm 23 walks through that for us and shows us all the, the reasons why it's going to be okay. Okay, we look around now and things look terrible sometimes. And we think, have you ever had this thought? Have you ever maybe glanced at the news? Hopefully you don't spend a whole lot of time just staring at the news and getting in a bad mood and becoming discouraged. But if you ever just glance at the news and, and catch up on some current events, have you ever had the thought, man, this, this world really is messed up. I wish Jesus would just come back tomorrow. Funny story, I, I used to work with a, a lady at the South Carolina Baptist Convention over in Columbia, and anytime someone would mention something like that in the office about, oh, Jesus, please just come back, she would always say, well, don't let him come this week. I hadn't had my vacation yet. I just, like, really? Where are you going? What are you doing? Because it must be some kind of vacation if you'd like to postpone the Lord's return so you can go on your vacation. But, uh, you know, I, I think the perspective was just a little bit off there. But have you ever thought like that? I just wish Jesus would come back and take care of all this and, and get us out of here. This is, there's so much bad around us sometimes. We have to remember, though, we have a shepherd who is good. 
and he cares for us. Number four, finally, God is unparalleled in forgiveness. The, the prophecy of Micah ends on such a positive note. After all the warning of judgment and the, the acknowledgement of, hey, you need to turn around here. You know, you're going the wrong way. God's bringing judgment because of what you're doing, how you're living. You need to change what you're doing. And then you get to the end and you start to hear positive messages of hope. Our Lord is greatest in the characteristic that's mentioned last. Forgiveness. It's a great biblical principle. Knowing God to be so merciful ought to make us anxious to avoid sinning. Right? That's really what grace and mercy are all about when you think about those two uh, attributes of God. Grace is giving us good things that we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us the bad things we do deserve. It's like two sides of a heavenly coin. And, and those things are not meant to give us the perspective of, hey, grace means I get forgiveness and mercy means I don't get judgment. So that means I can just do whatever I want, right? Because I'm covered by grace and mercy. No, no. If, if that's our attitude, then we totally misunderstand grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, because they're so amazing, are, are meant to drive us the opposite direction and say, I cannot believe God would be so gracious and merciful and forgiving and kind. Therefore, I'm going to run as far away from sin as I possibly can because I don't want to disappoint a God who would be that kind to me. Even though I am this sinful... I am not going to dishonor him by disobeying. I'm going to run from sin at every chance. See, that, that's what grace and mercy are supposed to do in our lives. It ought to make us anxious to avoid sin. The most important truth to keep us from sinning is the knowledge that God is unparalleled in his forgiveness and he will have mercy on us even if we do sin. So Micah asks this question in verse 18. Who is a God like you? So I want you to just picture in your mind, Micah is realizing everything that God has told him as he relays this to God's people. And it drives him in verse 18 to ask this simple question. Who is like our God? There's not another person on the earth. There's not another uh, there is no other God that would relate to His people like this. There is no other God that is this gracious. There is no other God that is this merciful. There is no other God that is this loving and forgiving and kind. There's just no other God like this. And so it's a rhetorical question that he asks in verse 18. Who is a God like you? He's overwhelmed with... The, the qualities, the goodness of God. As we close today, I um, was reminded of this portion of a sermon by the great old African-American preacher named S.M. Lockridge. And he closed out his sermon on the goodness of God with 
this monologue about some of his qualities. And I'm going to attempt to read it to you. I, I won't be able to uh, deliver it to you in the way he did. He was one of a kind. But the, the words he wrote are as follows. The Bible says, My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. He's a sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know Him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He is available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and He saves. He strengthens and He sustains. He guards and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and He beautifies the meager. I wonder if you know Him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know Him? Well, His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you. Yes, He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get Him out of your mind. You can't get Him off of your hand. You can't outlive Him and you can't live without Him. The Pharisees couldn't stand Him, but they found out they couldn't stop Him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's my king. Do you know him? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.